when you hear a story, it, your brain acts like the circus came to town. So in addition to the language processing and competent, uh, comprehension, you have emotional responses, connections to life. There's just so much more there. So this is also why increasing, you know, patient talk time is important. So uh, it's, it's, we really, we know that when, when people talk through what they're learning, those neural links are, they're, they're, they're making more connections. They're, they're being used. It's just a much richer experience. You are right? tapping into Untapped K, a podcast about sobriety and mental health, spotlighting stories that provide hope and love. Talking about sobriety and mental health, we talk about subjects that can be hard to take in and can also cause some mixed emotions. Keep that in mind as you're listening to this episode. Find us on all podcast platforms, Untapped K and youtube.com slash untappedk. Join us for live recordings on Sundays. All right, let's get to this story that provides hope and love. Welcome. Thank you for tapping into some Untapped Keg, our podcast where we explore the different perspectives of sobriety and recovery, mental health, so that hopefully we can find something you can take and implement into your own life. You can find us on all podcast platforms. Hit that subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review if where you're listening allows that. Share it with your friends on social media. You can find us at Untapped Keg on all social media platforms. And you can find us at youtube.com slash Untapped Keg. You go to untappedkeg.com. You can find our merch store if you want to buy a shirt or um, something like that. We sell them at very slim margins. And then everything that we get, we give to a different charity. So, um, yeah, thank you, everybody, for joining me today. I am very excited about this episode. We are joined by Andrew Port, former teacher and the executive director of the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. Andrew, how are you doing today? Fantastic, RJ. It is a pleasure for me to be here. And as I said to you in, in my email, I think that this is really an appropriate podcast for, for it to be my first one, because I believe what we're bringing to behavioral health is really an untapped keg. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love that we we went right there. Um, <laughs> that's really good. So, I, I, you know, I've seen you. So we uh, met each other on LinkedIn. And like I saw you uh, post a couple of times and I looked and I really like kind of what you have here. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and then uh, a little bit about the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. Sure. Thank you. So um, my name is Andrew Bort. I am a licensed teacher in the state of Texas. I received my master's degree in education from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I have a TEFL C through Columbia University Teachers College, a CELTA from Cambridge University, EC STEM certification through Shanghai Normal University, and I'm a certified Disney trainer for the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> I have taught students as young as two all the way through the university level. Uh, in addition to teaching, I've been in education administration, teacher training and development and curriculum design. I entered uh, the behavioral health space to bring value and expertise across professions uh, from education to behavioral health with the belief that I can make a positive difference here. I like to think of myself as the difference maker. It's one of the things that drives my own recovery. And I see an opportunity here to make an impact. So I consider myself a lifelong learner and credit education as an important aspect of my own recovery. I think in more ways than one, too. Uh, my own research into addiction led to a shift in mindset for me. 
So a lot of it that I was reading was like negative and kind of scary stuff. But finding out that actually the majority of people, some studies say as much as 75% of people find continuous recovery and lead meaningful lives. It gave me a lot of hope. You know, I shifted from how did I get dealt this hand to what do I want to accomplish and what do I need to do to make that happen? And I thought if so many other people who were struggling like me, you know, they got through it, then I could too. Of course, I didn't do it alone. You know, I had lots of help from some close relationships that thankfully I didn't lose. You know, and I support the idea that there are multiple paths to recovery. Um, My experience won't be the same as anyone else's. And, you know, we know that through the science of learning uh, that I'm going to connect this to later, that if you and I, for example, were to read the same exact recovery pamphlet, we would process the information and internalize it differently according to our own schema. So that's our prior knowledge and experience. It colors everything that we get input on, right? Um, I also learned the implications uh, my recovery would have for my daughter for the rest of her life. Um, the opportunity to break the cycle of addiction and trauma that I had growing up, um, you know, it became a huge motivator for me. You know, I want like so many other parents to give my baby the childhood I wish I had. Uh, and I'm proud to say that for the last three years, her dad has been present, aware, and dedicated to making that happen. But, you know, it's more than that. Is it okay if I keep going? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I want to talk about my fifth graders too. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, keep going. Well, so being a role model for my daughter is is super important to me, like showing her how a man should act, treat her mom, you know, never give up, work before play. I think it's one of the most important jobs that I had, but it was also very important for me as a teacher. You know, being a role model for my students was an important factor for me. Uh, as fate would have it, I actually had the privilege of teaching fifth grade for the last two years. And that's the year, at least in my district, where students are introduced to substance use, the dangers of misusing medication, drug use, and so on. It's through this program called Kids and Cops. So while they never found out specific details of my past, most were not appropriate or for that age setting. Like, you know, they they really liked me as a teacher. I I loved and inspired (laughs) them. Uh, I didn't want them to think if Mr. Bort did it, then, oh, well, it must be safe to try. You know, but it it felt great to tell them honestly that I didn't drink and share with them, you know, relevant information that I wouldn't have known uh, that I not been a combination of extensive study and my own personal experience. So I would like to think that my fifth graders got a richer, more memorable experience in drug education than they would have in another class. You know, we went beyond responding to peer pressure, which, you know, had plenty of planning and role play practice involved. But we talked about coping skills. We're given the opportunity to anonymously share stories of how addiction impacted our lives. And because of the parts of the lessons that I use, like ran mo- multiple forms of media. So we used video, literature, small group problem solving, strategizing, writing practice. I believe that they will retain the information, you know, that we've created and reinforced neural pathways that's going to positively impact how they approach a substances later. So we capitalized on a teachable moment there. And for me, if even one student makes a positive life choice because of my class, how awesome is that? And how important is that now? Like, especially now, you know, I, I'm, I'm easy to get off track. I mentioned you before we started, I do have ADHD. So sometimes if I go into <laughs> tangents, you can bring me back in. But fentanyl scares the hell out of me. And I think it should scare anyone with a child because you just cannot experiment anymore. You know, it yeah. is just dangerous. It's... But, you get outside those lines and you got to hope that, you know, hopefully Narcan or something is close by. Like the fact that we know what Narcan is, 
and that it's being put out everywhere really tells you how dangerous all of this is. It's scary being a parent, you know, but especially like when you're a teacher, you develop the relationships, you make connections with, uh, you know, those kids. So I feel like I've got, you know, not just my own daughter, I've got 150 other kids out there that I'm that I'm worried about, too. Uh, But luckily, yeah, getting back, it'll probably impact more than just one student, because that's what great teaching and great delivery does. It helps people to gain and retain knowledge and skills. And there are proven ways to do it that are better than others, which is why the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy was born. And as the title suggests, it focuses on groups. It does this to impact as many patients as possible. Now, don't get me wrong. There are, you know, certainly field similarities with individual therapy, too. There's a great deal of parallels, but more so in group therapy. You want to hear some of them? Yes, please. Okay. Well, I'm actually yeah, let, let, let's let's do it this way. I'll, I'm going to I'm going to uh, describe some situations and, and you can tell me what I'm talking about. Would that be OK? Yeah, I'm, that's that actually sounds like fun. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So you have a population of people with different background knowledge, different life experiences, different motivations, different learning preferences, different speeds of working memory and information processing. But most importantly, some of those people, they don't want to be there. Am I talking about students or patients? I would probably say patients, but they could be both right there. (laughs) In this case, the makeup of a group therapy setting in a classroom are almost identical. All right. So leading this group of people is a facilitator with expertise in the subject matter that they deliver. This person has to manage expectations, help shape behavior, provide skills, or knowledge training and support those that they lead. Occasionally, yeah, they will. They're going to need to deal with like outbursts or disruptions from within the pack while still managing to keep everybody else in the room on track. Am I talking about a teacher or a therapist? Uh, Teacher generally, I would say, (laughs) but it could be both again. (laughs) Again, almost indistinguishable, right? So next, okay, you have a... Yeah, you have a space where this population goes to learn and grow. So this space should be inviting, non-threatening, safe, supportive. It's a community where you learn from each other just as much as you can learn from the facilitator. Am I talking about group therapy or a classroom? Again. Both again. (laughs) Both again. Okay, uh, one more. So now we we have an objective for the population to work towards, okay? Something that we want them to learn uh, or take away from the experience. Like when they leave, we want them to have more knowledge or skill than when they entered the space. Mm-hmm. I think you see what I'm getting at here. So and that's, the thing you is- know, I love how you introduce that and like bring these topics because it makes you think in a, some ways that maybe uh, we don't allow ourselves to. Like a lot of times, you know, the way that we go through education, you really are taught that you have to. St- draw within the lines right and Mm -hmm. throughout all of our education the lines are increased so you have all of these lines that you're trying to draw in between but those lines were created they were drawn on the paper for us and we have to figure out how to either look past those lines or color outside of them to get more experience to get more knowledge to because you know one of our favorite sayings here is you don't know what you don't know until you see it 
you can't you can't know that you don't know that. So I I love that you said that, RJ. I'm a, I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off. You finished <laughs> that, but I'm gonna you're, I'm gonna bring that back in a little bit later because that illustrates a point of, that I'm trying to make. So thank you so much for for saying that and knowing that already. But I'm gonna prove it to you a little bit later. I love I and that's the thing, like you know. When we when when we're all talking, right, and we all have we all have stories, and we can all bring things full circle. Like, you know, I'm a high voltage line electrician, so I ha- work on high voltage power lines. Mm-hmm. And when you said when you give directions and people put their biases and their schema on everything, I will tell one apprentice to do one thing, and I'll to tell another apprentice to do the exact same thing, and I'll use the exact same words. This one will do everything I said to a T. This one will do things that I didn't say and will, you know, be able to figure it out. And the one who did what I said to a T, I'll be like, why didn't you do everything? I told you to do this. And the one who filled everything in had seen it before, kind of knew what I meant. But like without knowing that oh you have to let's say ground this transformer a certain way why why would he why would they know that like of course they wouldn't so Uh you know and that's something that i talk about with uh crew members that i talk about with people that i work with is you say something and it makes perfect sense to you and it makes perfect sense to somebody who's worked with you for two years but if you're with somebody who's like been there a couple months if you're with somebody who's new if you're with somebody who maybe is has more experience in the field than you, but hasn't worked with you before, they're going to do things differently than what the person who worked with you for four years is. And that Absolutely. is exactly what you're talking about with like putting your own schema behind it. But also it closes our mind to what is possible in the world. And that is important with what you're talking about and with where you're going with, um, you know, group therapy and trying to make it accessible and the best for everybody involved. And like that, that's where I get excited. So as we're talking about group therapy, mm-hmm. you know, where where do you, you know, uh, you said your students and, you know, the patients and the facilitators and the teachers were all like there. You can put one almost one to one. Right. Mm-hmm. What is so special about being able to do that? Like if we start thinking about group therapy in that way. Well, the, the way I see it is based on the models that I that I have observed, I mean, even the ones that are put up by the facilities as their example sessions, okay, the it's largely a didactic mode of physician, which is uh, the teacher is transferring knowledge, right? Um, generally, there's only one person speaking at a time. Okay, so in these situations, are these environments the best for learning? Are they conducive to learning? Well, my answer based on, again, science and neuroscience is going to be no, they are not. And we know this uh, because when when people are just listening passively to information, when we, we cannot tell if they are learning or not. We do not know for sure if they are zoning out. We don't know what's going on in their brain, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if with, strate- with strategic planning of of sessions, you can build in activities such as focus tasks, where you can ensure that everybody is 
doing something because they have something to show you when they're done. So you can hold it in your hand. You can say, okay, I see how much progress that they have made based on the assignment that I gave them. So really, we're, well, I'm going to get into this in a little bit when we talk about um, some of the goals we have for patients in group therapy is to create unconscious automated processes. But I'd like to explain that more in stages so, you, so I can kind of illustrate the point a bit better, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is a, this is a subject that is, you know, like I told you before we came on, like, I think that like the, the forward thinking and trying to change some dynamics, it can, um, sometimes be overwhelming because we have our beliefs that were there before. So if we, mm-hmm build things up and connect them like that. It really helps people being able to see, Oh, that line's been there the whole time. And I haven't stepped over it thinking it's a wall, but it's actually a line that is not really. So let's, let's go there. Okay. Well, so let's talk about, say you're talking about the connection. So let's say the main differences between the field of education and behavioral health is that education began making the switch away from this idea that the, the best way people learn are as passive receptors of information in the early 20th century with, um, you know, pioneers in education theory like Dewey, Montessori, Piaget, uh, with mainstream acceptance uh, following World War II. So lessons that were primarily didactic knowledge transfer, or as teachers call them, sit and get, were replaced by collaborative practice, project-based learning, practical application. So group therapy really hasn't done this yet. The, there have been definitely been pi- uh, pioneers in the field. Uh, Yalom, for example, uh, started pushing for some of these changes in the 1970s. Uh, the issue is, though, that the current clinicians' courses, some, not all, cover this information more in theory than practice. Read about it. Talk about it. But as you will see as we continue our conversation today, that, that's just not enough. Okay, teachers go through extensive training and practice to sharpen their skills as group facilitators. And for good reason, because we have decades of educational research showing us uh, the correlation between hands-on repeated practice, talk time, collaborative learning experiences, and engagement, and what impact that has on retention and the ability to recall. It's, it's I mean, it, we really, we need to start using this. And it's known that, you know, there's those different ways that people learn, like, you know, it's all adds into a percentage, but like, uh, you know, you have your doers, you have your writers and you have your listeners and like, you know, which do you learn the most from? And if we know that, why don't we take that and put it into group therapy as well? RJ, what's so, what's so fascinating is what you're talking about is actually a misconception in education. Oh, okay. That's okay. Because <laughs> you know what? It's not just this this idea of learning styles. It's not just prevalent in popular culture, some professionals as well. And it's because it seems intuitive. You know, oh, I like to write, so I must be a kinesthetic learner. Or um, I like to watch videos, so I must be a visual learner. But just because something may seem easier to you or you prefer it, and that's true. People do have preferred learning styles, but it doesn't mean they're actually gaining the information or skills any faster. Like, for example, um, if you heard a bird chirp, okay, but it was just it's an average bird, not like a, a, not a parakeet or a, a crow, you would only recognize that as a bird through hearing, right? There's no way that you could visually understand what a bird's chirp sounds like. 
Mm -hmm. right? So we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get into um, memory and the way uh, that we encode information. But but yes, you what you you did touch on an important point. People do have preferred learning styles, and the best way to deliver information is to maximize like the forms of media that you're using. That way, you can hit everybody's preferences, and you're actually creating neural links in different parts of the brain that link up to make that easier to recall. Perfect. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, though, because there's a lot of people that um, that well, one clinician pointed out to me, well, what about, you know, students in university? Like they sit uh, they sit in lectures for hours. Right. Well, this particular population is self-selecting. OK, they they are highly motivated and they've paid for what they're listening to and believe they will receive a return on investment. OK, so the same goes for ongoing educational hours, too. Um, but going further than that, lecture situations usually apply to cases involving theory, not practical use. You wouldn't learn how to become a mechanic or an electrician from a lecture, would you? No. 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 So at the, <laughs> yeah, at the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy, our training focuses on delivery and facilitation skills. So we need to ask ourselves, you know, what do we want our patients to be able to do? And can that be accomplished through a didactic model of facilitation where one person talks at a time? If the answer is no, well, then what are our options? You know what I mean? And yeah. back up even further, what if you didn't know the answer to that question? What do I want my patients to be able to do? Well, this is where knowledge and skill come in, right? So I think you might have, I, I, I've said this before, but there are things that human beings are biologically inclined to learn, right? Like you'll recognize the face of a friend if, you know, if food has spoiled through either sight or smell, but others require repetitive practice. You wouldn't learn to swim by talking about it or watching someone write bullet points on a board. You need practice. And learning is rules-based too. Like take language, for example. Would you call language knowledge or a skill? I would say it starts as knowledge and becomes a skill later on, right? <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, language but, is pretty complicated because it, yes. it's a little bit of both. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an example of uh, of language as a skill. Okay. Okay. So you're a native English speaker, correct? Correct. Okay. I'm gonna show you a series of sentences, and before you get worried, I know this doesn't sound like the greatest idea for a podcast, but <laughs> I'm they're they're short, they're to the point, and I'm gonna be descriptive. Okay. Okay. So. The sentences are missing the to be verb, okay? So, for example, the first one says, I blank, not at the store right now. Can you fill this in for me? Uh, I am not at the store right now. Right. I am not at the store right now. Okay. Next one. You are not at the store right now. You are not at the store right now. Okay. Next one. I was not at the store yesterday. Correct. Now, this one's a little bit more difficult because there's two options. Blank, blank to the store yet today. I have, I still have to, boy, uh, okay. this one I'm not going to get. <laughs> I, ha I, ha I haven't been or I haven't gone. Okay. okay. Last one. Okay. Last one. If I blank you, I'd go to the store before dark. If I am you, I'd go to the store before dark. If I was you, uh, I'll try if I was you. Okay. Okay, so your brain filled in these answers automatically, right? 
This Pretty is an much, unconscious yeah. automated process. But this is actually very, very complex grammar. It doesn't feel like that to you, but it but it actually is very com- complex grammar. Okay, so our first one, I am not at the store right now, is uh, first person singular uh, present tense. You are not at the store right now. Second person singular present tense. I was not at the store. Uh, I was not at the store yesterday. Uh, that is uh, first person singular past tense. Number four, I haven't been. This is first person singular present perfect tense. And if I, this one's actually, if I were you, uh, okay. I, I store before dark. Okay, so you you filled those in automatically, but could you explain to me when you would use simple past tense versus uh, present perfect tense? No, I couldn't. No. I could not explain that. <laughs> so one one talks about uh, an event that has been completed in the past, and another one talks about an event that began in the past but continues to right now. Like I have lived in Texas since 2019, and I still do. Right, and in the case of uh, number five, which if I were you, but yeah, you're you're very right that it has become normal now to say if I was, but usually for the subjunctive clause. In hypothetical situations, we use the past participle form of the verb, which in this case is were. But this gives you an example. You could do this exercise, but you have no knowledge of the rules of it. Your brain does it for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and that's the point, I think, because what we want is for our patients to create these unconscious automated processes that direct them to positive thought patterns and behaviors without them even realizing it. If they feel the urge to use or if they are quick to anger, we don't want them to have to stop and think, what am I supposed to do? We want them to be acting, right? We want to we want to get them there. And that's going to happen through practice. But let me ask you, I mean, why does the brain do this? Why does the brain create these rules? Do you have any thoughts on it? It's got to be like... Um... <clears throat> to streamline and be more efficient with our processes. You're absolutely correct. Okay. So the brain makes up 2% of the body's mass, but uses 20% of its energy. Okay. The most, it wants to save as much energy as possible. Okay. And conscious thought is the most intensive form of thought. And it usually originates from the prefrontal cortex. Okay. In order to conserve energy, the brain will create rules and turn them into unconscious automated processes. And this is why old habits are so hard to break. You know, you're supposed, you, you want to go to the gym, but you, you find yourself going towards the, the couch instead, or, you know, you're, you're depressed. And even though you just ate, you're, you're, you're staring into the refrigerator again. Right. So yeah. this is, this kind of ties into that a little bit, but uh, another example might be retired pilots. So I don't know if you are familiar, but like a lot of retired pilots, they like to take up remote control plane flying once they retire. But an issue they have is they can't fly the plane backwards because the controls are invert are like reversed, right? They, they're fine when the plane is flying away from them. But when the plane turns around, they have to reverse the controls. And they have a career's worth of experience flying this direction. It is very, very difficult to learn what you know and then reroute those pathways. But it absolutely can be done. Let me give you one more example. Have you ever planned to go to the store after work? Um, All of a sudden, you found yourself pulling into your driveway? 
at home? Yes. Yes, very often. <laughs> Everybody's done that, right? Uh, so it's so it's funny because your brain has driven home so so many times and has driven the car so many times that your brain has created an unconscious automated process for it. Now, of course, if someone cuts you off and slams on the brake, you're going to snap out of that. Then maybe you'll remember to go to the store, but your brain was in energy safe mode your entire way home. Right. It's it's so, happened to me where like I moved from a place that I lived and I took the exit that's the opposite direction going to the place that I moved from instead of the place that I moved to. And like I got 15 minutes into it and I was like, oh, wait, oh, oh I can't believe I did that. But it's like, yeah, it's exactly what you said. I was on autopilot. Like I was not. <laughs> I was thinking about something else completely. <laughs> uh, huh? Yeah, it, it's and it's it. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And if you thought that little language exercise was fun, in the actual training, uh, 10 minutes of the 10-hour uh, training that we offer, I actually teach 10 minutes in Chinese, like only Chinese, an immersion class. And that one's to emphasize um, the purpose of like scaffolding and you know helping uh, patients or students or learners uh, to be in the right zone of proximal development for learning, like right where they need to be. It's giving a few people extra help. It's taking away help from some others, you know, just so everybody has the right balance of where they need to be for learning. Okay. Um, and so, but it's, it's a really, it's really fun is what I mean. Yeah. It's a, that's a, that's a fun part of the lesson for me to deliver when it's Chinese, because everyone's what is going on here, you know? So it's, 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 it's a pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting part of the, of the training session. So um, anyway, I was going to say like a lot of this is stuff that um, I completely connect with. So like my dad was also a lineman, uh, you know, same with me, high voltage line tech. One thing that we do and all the old guys will tell you, the people who retired when you're driving, you know, 40% of the time you're looking at the, at the road as you're driving, but the other 60, you're looking up, you're looking at the lines. How did they build that? You're figuring it out. And a lot of times when there's something new that comes through, you'll have these people come out and they'll start talking to you. And you're like, why are you talking to me? Like, you know what you're talking about. And then you find out it's alignment. They're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Cause they have never done something like this. Why are you doing it that way? And it's just, it's interesting how those professions and how you build up these skills. Sometimes you have to unmake them to learn new things and you don't even realize it. And, uh, like the, so there were buckets, uh, and there are two different types of buckets and there's a chicken wing and uh, an elbow, the elbow, you could go over center and move back and forth. And when you got over center, the controls flipped inverted same way. So mm -hmm. if you weren't used to running that kind of bucket, you would struggle on it for like the first few months for the same reason. So like that just flipped in my brain as you were telling me those stories. And uh, I, I kind of wanted to bring that up a little bit too. how like all of this can be related if you want it to relate. <laughs> and that it's funny because that is one of the principles of adult learning. Mm -hmm. Is that and that's why that's why I did think of some um, examples to show you. It's to help you connect what I'm talking about to things that you already know. It's going to make them easier for you to remember. But what is the first thing that you need to have before like learning can take place? Like, what is the first prerequisite for learning? Is it curiosity? Ooh, that's a good one. It's uh, it's conscious attention. You can't okay. learn something not paying attention to it. Okay. Uh, 
So, but there are certain other principles uh, that tie to adult learning. I think you, you know, you hit one of them. One is motivation. Okay. There needs to be buy-in. The objective uh, needs to be clear in the session. Um, inclusion of life experience. So we're talking about this a little bit. Uh, this is the schema uh, and conceptual frameworks, which I'll get into in just a minute. Um, autonomy. This is where uh, building conceptual framework through didactic facilitation uh, may come in handy and where scaffolding comes into play. So the goal here is to get learners to practice independently. That way they are ready to use their knowledge and skills outside of the safety of the therapy space in our case. Mm -hmm. And another one is problem solving. Uh, humans by nature are problem solvers. It's motivating. We feel good about ourselves when we accomplish something that had a little bit of challenge. So in education, we call this desirable difficulty. Um, but there are certain learning strategies and activities that utilize problem solving more than others. Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> there's so many things that like I struggle with that. Like if I told my friend about, they're like, yeah, you just do this. And I'm like, how did yeah, you, but I can't, <laughs> why, why right. would that be something you thought of? And they're like, Oh, it happened to me this one time. And it's like, Oh, interesting. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> so you, you remember that thing you touched on earlier okay that, that ties into conceptual frameworks okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna say a sentence to you and I, i'm gonna ask you to try to remember it as, as much as you can okay okay ready i am ready okay one more time one more time okay okay I'm going to ask you in five minutes what I just said, but you're going to have absolutely no idea. Okay. And I already know that you probably, I mean, you might, you might, you want to try it right now? Go ahead. What'd you get? Uh, Very good. Okay. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's what I said. Here's what I said. Uh, I lived in China for 10 years. So where did I tell you I lived for 10 years? China. In China. Okay. So now, because you're engaged in this conversation and I have your attention, you will probably remember that I lived in China for 10 years, at least for the rest of this session. Will you remember in two weeks? Maybe. But you will forget eventually. I mean, you may come across it while re-listening to this podcast one day, but humans are naturally wired to forget. But can you tell me the names of, say, seven people in your sixth grade math class? Uh, yes, because they were the same people in my kindergarten and the same people that I graduated with. So oh, that's wow. kind of so cheating. You might, yeah, you might, have, you might have had a different, uh, you might have had a different um, experience. How, how many kids went to your school? Uh, so I graduated with 100 um, and probably 85 of us went from kindergarten through high school together. Okay. So, See, this, this is a good learning experience for me. Maybe I'll switch it up. <laughs> what did you do for your 11th birthday? I don't know. Okay. There you go. But I'm sure at the time <laughs> that was a very important day, right? I, I, I can pretty much guarantee it was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, th this is a good learning experience for me. I, prob I probably won't ask that question anymore because I'm, uh, of course, my own schema. I, I graduated with 8,000. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, for me. And I know I'm in the minority. Like there's not very many people who went 
just that, school, that's like, exciting. Kindergarten to high school with the same, the same like, people. That's insane. Body. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, maybe that example doesn't apply for your case. But um, one of the cast members of Friends, I can't remember which one. Um, they don't even remember filming entire seasons. I mean, think about that. Not only did they study a script and commit it to memory, but they probably did rehearsals with uh, with other people. It's like, but they can't remember all these years later. It's it's. Uh, it's, it's very interesting the way the mind works and how much we really forget, but I'm getting off topic. So the reason you will not uh, remember the, the um, sentence I said in Chinese is because you do not have a memory bucket for that. This is like you said, you cannot mm. remember what you don't know. So exactly. So this would is that be another way to frame that would be like, I have no frame of reference for it. So yeah. like, that's the same, same principle. Yeah, same same principle. So you can't remember what you don't know. You do have a memory bucket for English. So, you know, you can do your language processing um, and comprehension there. Uh, you also know, you know, China as a country. It's pretty familiar. If I gave you um, some obscure uh, city from Indonesia, for example, probably not as easy to remember. And also, um, I... I think maybe either through some of my writing or I mentioned already that, that I'd lived in China before. So uh, that's going to reinforce what's already in your working memory and make it a little bit easier uh, for you to remember. But this shows us the importance of accessing and asking about prior knowledge and building conceptual frameworks. You know, whether uh, whatever the content of or topic of a session might be, this is always an important thing to do. And it, it ties back into, you know, you're looking at the power lines or, you know, anything else that we've, we've talked about today. Uh, you want to get your, your learner base at, to as similar a point as you can for the, for the learning to be as effective as possible. You want to establish yeah. a baseline. And that's, yeah. that makes a lot of sense where if one thing that I've noticed is whoever it is, no matter what their background co coming in, you can learn what you want to learn but a lot of times you have to get people to relate to it in their own way because everybody's different. Mm -hmm. Everybody has their own experiences. It's the same, same with sobriety and recovery. Like there are so many ways and you touched on it earlier too, that there's so many different pathways to recovery. Like the way that I got sober is not going to work for very many people period, but it's the way that I related to because it's the way that my dad got sober. So like, yeah. At least that's the way that I thought my dad, that I related to my dad getting sober that way. Like I know that I, that is why it worked for me that way. But somebody else, like basically I went cold Turkey is what I did. And is somebody else that's not, that's not going to work. It's not, you know, there's just no, there's no baseline for it. So how do you know, learning something new, you need some, a guide, a mentor, all of this, right. That we're talking about, but like, you need to be able to relate it to yourself so that you can retain it. Like that's, that's where it is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And there's, there's more effective ways to deliver information. So you can kind of ensure that it will be retained at least at a higher level. And this mm -hmm. is important when you're talking about a group of learners, because you want all of them to progress as much as possible. And that's why mixing it up is, is a good thing. And so all of these things are important to understand um, because they apply to how information should be delivered. So we have other 
memory buckets too. Okay. We have memory buckets for facts. We have them for uh, senses, like we talked about before with the, with the bird chirp or, um, you know, smelling a, a nice meal coming out of the oven. You, you only can, certain senses are, are dedicated to certain memories. Okay. And em emotions play a big part too. So you can think of it like a highway. Um, and delivering information in multiple media forms. So video, activities, small group. Okay, this is, if the information is a highway, you're building on-ramps, okay, at this point. Because the it's stored in, in different places in your brain. Okay, the more, the more different activities, uh, whether it's hands-on, visual, or um, forms of media that you use. Okay, so you're building on-ramps to this highway. And you're building roads that lead to those on-ramps. So this is what happens when we get new information and uh, it's repeated in different con uh, context or with practice is the neural links are firing in your brain and, you know, the links are getting uh, stronger and they're getting hardened. OK, so it is going to be easier for you to find that path again, the more ways you've been introduced to it. OK, so if let's use a, a, a test example, if a teacher gives me a question on a test and I can't remember the answer. Let's say he showed me an image of it. He talked about it. I wrote it down and I did an activity with, uh, with my small group where we collaborated and we did some uh, project where it, it tied into the knowledge. Now I have four on-ramps to my freeway. So even if I forget one or two of those, I still have two more that I might be able to find. <laughs> It increases the likelihood that I'm going to be able to recall that information later. And of course, this applies to recovery. I mean, whether it's recovery coping skills or what I need to do when I'm triggered, you know, it's important that I be able to find those on ramps, right? Yes, that is, that's really like, it, it reminds me of in college, I knew that like the recall of sound is a little bit sharper than like writing or like uh, listening. But not listening, but like, I don't know. Anyway, so I was studying for my subjects for my finals. I had a specific band and a specific album I would listen to while I'm studying, no matter what. And then I would play that album again. And that would like prime my brain, at least I thought so, right? For that subject. Like I would start listening, I would hear it. That subject would be primed. And like, I don't know if it worked or not. I did well on the test, but what I have otherwise, I'm, I can't say 100%. But like that, what you're saying is like adding context to like a lot of the ways that we went through school, a lot of the ways that we do learn, a lot of the mm -hmm. things that we pick up. And yeah, like it's, it makes total sense to me. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give another um, example. Okay. So, in neuroscience, we have what's called fire it to wire it, okay? So like I said before, um, the more different media forms that, that someone will get the information under, and if they practice under various conditions, uh, the more neural links will form, okay? So with repeated practice, it's fire it to wire it. These okay. links will harden and form neural pathways. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the neural pathways become the unconscious automated processes. So if you think of it like a forest, the first couple times you walk to your destination, you're just walking over grass and leaves. But eventually, you will wear a groove into the dirt and form a path. And that's just like the brain works. You're going to get to your destination in the forest a lot faster if you have repeated practice. 
Mm-hmm. So I have a, I have another, I, I know I keep doing this to you. I have another, I have another uh, memory question from school. You, you, you passed my last one, which is very impressive, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Imagine you only went to school with a hundred people. Right. Okay. Um, do you remember the quadratic equation? Sir, yes. Oh, you did? Oh, that's A squared awesome. plus B squared equals C squared. No, it's Pythagorean theorem. Quadratic equation. No. Quadratic, uh, quadratic is a lot longer. So that's okay. How about this no, one? No, I don't remember run, it. Run, 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 run as fast as you can. Run, run, run. Fast as you can. You can't catch me. No, no, no. You can't catch me. This is a different one. It's a nursery rhyme. Do you know this one? Oh, uh, you can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. Right. Okay. So this is another This is another uh, fun uh, memory exercise. So you probably studied the quadratic equa- equation for two weeks, uh, four weeks in senior year of high school or junior year of high school, depending on when you had the math, like specifically to memorize it, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. you can't now. But you know the ending to a nursery rhyme you you heard many, many, many years earlier. So why is that? Well, the answer is when we hear information as individual facts, two parts of our brain light up. Okay, you've got language processing and comprehension. Uh, When you hear a story, your brain acts like the circus came to town. So in addition to the language processing and uh, comprehension, you have emotional responses, connections to life. There's just so much more there. So this is also why increasing, you know, patient talk time is important. So uh, it's it's. We really we know that when when people talk through what they're learning, those neural links are they're 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 making more connections. They're they're being used. It's just a much richer experience, right? Mm-hmm. And we, I, I think I uh, in an article I just came out with, I, I quoted uh, William Miller, who is the um, co-founder of uh, motivational interviewing. Okay, okay. so uh, yeah, what he what he found is that the more empathetic a therapist was, the less resistant behaviors they saw from patients and the more patients got to engage in positive change talk, okay? So the interesting thing that he found is the more change talk patients went through, the better they did in recovery, okay? So we need to, we need to, uh, explain things uh, in the group therapy setting using narratives, using stories, because they help us. We need to get patients to talk as much as possible, right? And there, there are certain activities and strategies that that you can use to make this happen. Okay, so we're, we're creating all these neural links, right? Um, but for the most part, we only have a fixed number of neurons in our brain. So when we want to store something in long-term memory for retrieval later. Uh, it needs somewhere to go. And that means something else needs to go away. Right. And this is why I said before, we're wired to forget. Yeah. So the memory consolidation process, I mean, it happens throughout the day, but most of it happens uh, during REM sleep during uh, like it's called pruning where the brain decides which gets put into long-term memory and uh, what gets pruned away or cut away. That's, that's how we can make the space for the things that we do remember and that we can recall throughout our lives. Right. But it's also why sleep is so important. And I know for a lot of patients in early recovery, sleep is, it's, it's, it's very valuable, but it's, it's a challenge, right? Absolutely. It absolutely is. Yeah. But the, the, the more, 
that you can get um, patients into a, a healthy sleep routine, really, the, the better it's going to be. And because it, it impacts memory and it impacts learning so much. Like people need at least seven hours. And I mean, I know Winston Churchill only got like 30 minutes and was fighting the Nazis and stuff, but that is not normal. Most people need seven or eight hours per night. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, that's something that it obviously changes through time, but you know, sometimes some weeks you're going to need more than eight, some weeks you're going to need less than seven, but like, it's going to even out. Right. And we need to figure out for ourselves, like where we got to be and try to fit it in. And yeah, sleep, sleep is definitely underrated. And I don't think it's something that is like, I always need this number. I think it definitely slides based on where you are as well. At least yeah. that's my opinion. And that's just my, me throwing my opinion in there. And it's oh, probably I, wrong, but <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. So look, I, I, we've talked, we've talked a lot about, you know, kind of the, the, the theory behind, you know, what we're trying to do at the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. Um, and really, but the, what our training is, is, is more of the, of the practice. Okay. So this is, this is the why behind what we're doing, but our actual training program focuses a lot on actual delivery and facilitation skills, but we've got a lot of exciting things coming up. Um, we have been accepted to, uh, present, uh, deliver a workshop at the Texas association of addiction professionals. That's the tap conference coming up here, uh, September 7 through 10 in San Antonio, followed by the Global Conference on Addiction Medicine, Behavioral Health, and Psychiatry in Orlando, uh, October 24th through 26th. Uh, but the most exciting news is that we have partnered with a provider to integrate our training onboarding, uh, training into their onboarding uh, process. Uh, so all of their new, all of their new clinicians will be trained through uh, certified through the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy, and very very exciting. We're going to go to Kansas next week and and roll that out. Congratulations, that's awesome. So, big news. You have these. Um, you're getting traction, right? Yeah, you're getting all of the theory behind it, and it, it makes complete and total sense to me. So, like, you know, I went to four-year school for six years and didn't leave with a degree, but like I spent a lot of it in psychology and a lot of this makes a lot of sense for what we learned there. I know a lot of like going through the apprenticeship to be a lineman. Like we do talk about like training and you end up being a trainer. And some of these things I use just from sometimes stuff that I kind of picked up from other stories from people. Some of the stuff I was a little bit innate, but like, when you think of group therapy and a trainer that gets certified through your um, your your process in the institute here, what does a trainer come out with? What skills do you really want them to possess as they go through your program? Hmm. Okay, so if it's all right with you. Uh, let me let me let me address it this way. Yeah. Uh, these because like I said, these skills are uh, transferable, right? So what I want them to have is a toolkit that they can draw from to deliver engaging uh, activities to us uh, to do a formative assessment of where maybe their patients are uh, towards achieving that goal that they set out for that day. Um, it's it, it's diversification uh, of instruction. 
uh, tools. It is tools to maximize engagement, to increase uh, patient talk time. Uh, you know, but it, it's funny because one of the challenges I've actually faced, can I, can I tell you, can I share with you my, my greatest challenge? And I think maybe Absolutely. it'll address your question too. Yeah. Okay. So one of the greatest challenges that I've faced is the fact that I am not a clinician. Okay, so it may be easy for some to dismiss my, the points that I'm making, uh, but doing so would be a logical fallacy. See, because my points relate to education and the science of how humans learn. I am not suggesting that therapists have not been doing their jobs or, or dictating which therapeutic interventions to use or when to use them. If a situation arises that cause, calls for process affordance when the clinician believes what a patient needs is for the whole group to stop and listen, even for an hour or longer, then they should absolutely follow their gut and utilize the hundreds or, in many cases, thousands of hours of training and experience to make the appropriate call. The fact that these moments exist, I think, makes the case for the Institute's training to be even more valuable and applicable. It's like speaking hypothetically, let's say half of the therapist group time in a week were dedicated to these moments. Doesn't that make the case that other 50% should be planned as strategically as possible to maximize the growth opportunity for everyone? So the, the training we provide, you know, focuses on delivery skills and facilitating learning in a group setting. And these skills are transferable. And I believe incorporating our methods and techniques into groups will help people, clinicians and patients. I really believe it. You know, group therapy is a learning environment, regardless of it. It's a process group, psychoeducational group, skill development group, CBT group, and so on. It's it's very difficult to comment how our approach targets of a particular style because they differ so wildly according to which facility you're at, who the facilitator is or facilitators are, group size, session length. You know, there's, there's so many factors. Even for process groups, many are unstructured, but some have a theme, so there's little to no consistency. The only thing that I have seen that remains fairly consistent is the therapist talk time is way up and patient talk time and skill practice are down or non-existent. And that's why our focus is elevating group therapy as a whole, not a particular form. Um, if I keep saying transferable skills, but I feel like I'm not doing a good job presenting it. So here, let me try it this way. I'm from the world of education. I'll use uh, educational comparison to help. Okay. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, teachers go through the certification pro process, okay, for their own degrees and stuff. They, yeah. they need, not degrees, licensing. They need to master the content they teach. That's true. But that is done through a completely separate degree or test. The primary focus of the certification pertains to uh, diversifying instruction, managing shaping behaviors in a group setting, creating student-centered activities, structuring objectives appropriately, right? Some of the things I mentioned before. It doesn't matter if you're teaching math, reading, science, or otherwise. These delivery techniques have been proven to elevate learning and retention of a diverse learner body. Effective delivery of skills transcend subject matter. So in the case of a clinician, their subject matter is helping people acknowledge, cope, grow, recover, build the skills necessary to be successful outside of the safety provided by the therapy space. Whatever type of group is being run, whether it is open or closed, or if it's a recovery meeting held in a church, these skills apply because the environment is an opportunity for learning and growth. So what, what I really want people to do is think about the following questions. One, what do I want my learners 
in this case, patients, to accomplish in this session? Two, what are the most effective ways to make this happen for everyone involved? Three, how will I know if I've met or how, how will I know if they have met the objective? Number four is what will I do uh, if they have not met the objective? And number five is what will I do if they have? So I think these questions are important to ask in any learning situation, but more than important, I would say that they are necessary. At the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy, our certification not only addresses these questions, but gives therapists an extensive toolkit to draw from when appropriate. If a therapist believes, as I stated before, that the best approach is to dedicate an entire hour to listening, then that's what they should do. But they should do it because it's the right call for the situation, not because it's the only approach that they know how to deploy, right? Yes. And that's something that I think is really important for people to to hear, to think about, to really process, right? What I mean, especially what you said, they're like, going through life, I think we sometimes forget that everything is learning. Like we think of learning, we think of homework, we think of tests, we think of you know, what do we think about? We think about all the negative things that we went through school with, that we went through. I just want to live. I just want to be there. But everything we learn is a new skill. Everything that we have that's a new skill, we had to learn and we had to start somewhere. But really, no situation is one-to-one. You have to have a toolkit. You have to be adaptable. Like that is what I learned as a lineman. Like no situation is going to be exactly like the last one. No situation of a flat tire is like how to change another flat tire, right? You have to know everything that you, then you don't even know everything until it happens. Exactly. You have to have skills that you can adapt. And that's what I mean by transferable skills. Yes. It's not content specific. It's not It's not session objective specific, okay? And this is another problem we run into. So another challenge is we have, a, there's established curriculums out there, right? So many facilities might say we have a curriculum, so we're good to go. But that misses the point of what the Institute Certification Program actually focuses on. Because look, there are some solid programs out there. Uh, but who is delivering them plays a significant factor. Even if a established recovery-based curriculum were to do a great job of answering question one, you know, which some do, I have yet to see one that answers number two, that how am I going to get everybody to that goal as quickly as possible? You know, everyone in the room, um, especially when it comes to number two, like providing extension or remedial exercises for patients who are at different stages of the recovery process, yet who are in the same group, they, they shouldn't necessarily be doing the same the same things at that time. I mean, in some cases they will, but not always, right? You need to have tools in case you see an opportunity for a, a teachable moment, right? Like, like I did with my fifth graders when we did the drug education. Uh, I'm not... I'm not certified to teach drug education. I'm a reading teacher, but I, I use that opportunity to bring in uh, ex- experts outside of, of me uh, yeah. to explain, you know, so, some of the things based on my experience and stuff like that. Okay, so there there is going to be times where an activity that works in one group won't be the best fit for another. Uh, 
perhaps mm-hmm. the size or dynamic. Okay, so for those moments, it's helpful to have like a Rolodex of alternatives at your disposal. We're going to give you that Rolodex. Okay, developing the mindset to consider our five questions, not to mention having the skills to address the answers, it requires training. So that's what's going to bring more consistency in the effective delivery of group therapy. And it's not just my opinion. You know, there is science behind this. As as we spoke before, I, I'm going to compile a, a bibliography to send to you, RJ, that, so you can put it in the, the notes of the podcast so people can access this. Because I, I think research-based has become a buzzword. And I, I, I want people to have access to the research that I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's, I think that being open and honest about that too, really, yes, it, it, it is a buzzword because what is research-based? I asked 10 people in a diner and whatever they said that I did research, right? But like showing your work, like there's, you go through and try to try to poke holes in this. Go ahead. That, like, that's what that's what I want. That's what I want. Yeah, and actually, yeah. that, that brings it back. But it's why I'm so excited about this. The opportunity to cross professions and share educational best practices with behavioral health. But it's so funny because I've spoken with numerous clinicians, though only a small fraction compared to the number that I've reached out to. And I even had one drop me as a connection when I asked them for feedback on session design, <laughs> which is fine. You know, change is hard. It is for me, too. Yes. But, that being said, there are people in behavioral health that are excited about what we're doing. So I do have a request for the clinicians listening to this. You know, if you've read some of the content that the Institute has produced and you're not quite sure how you would apply some of these practices in your group, reach out to me. Let's engage in some dialogue. We could even design some session activities together. What a you know great way to collaborate and help advance the field of behavioral health together. I mean, that's awesome. That's, that, that's, what I want. that's how you know somebody's passionate, that they want to change things that for the better, right? Like nobody wants yeah. to change things for the worse. I mean, come on. Exactly. But like when we Be get a part stuck, of the process. Yes, exactly. So like when we get stuck in our ways of thinking, like who knows what there is out there that we're missing that is like we're adding so much time and why. And you know, um, one question I want to ask you is where do you see like peer support in this group therapy? Like, do you think like peer support groups, uh, people could go through and get what, uh, through your program and get what you're talking about? Do you think peer support, it can be as effective as, um, I don't want to say as effective, but has their own place. Right. Um, well, yeah, I think I see what you're coming out with. So, I want, I want to, what I want to make absolutely clear again is that is that our training does not replace the expertise or the knowledge of the clinicians. We don't yes. talk about therapeutic interventions. Okay, so the clinician's role is of vital, vital importance. Now, can some of the activities uh, that we're talking about be, and some of the skills be applied to a twelve-step meeting or a peer recovery group? 100% yes they absolutely can but for you know for those moments you know that that a, a patient needs process affordance or if you know if there's an aha moment again we're not telling you how to do your job we're, we're giving you skills to have multiple options within what you're comfortable with doing already right and so yes it, there is a place for them in peer recovery. There's a place for these skills in 12-step and uh, SMART. There's there there's a place for these skills everywhere. But 
we believe right now that the biggest value is going to bring uh, is going to apply to the group therapy space. I love it. And that's, I think that that's really important. What you said there is like, and that's where I think a lot of people get threatened is because they think they're going to be replaced. And they think that like my knowledge is unnecessary, but like, that's not what you're saying, like at all, period, point blank. What you're saying is your knowledge is absolutely needed. And I'm going to give you some more skills that will help you use that knowledge even more. Deliver it in a way where your patients come away understanding, retaining more, but more importantly, have recovery skill practice, coping practice. It's practice, practice, practice that's going to make a difference. And um, and yeah, I'm I'm super excited about it. And I and I and I value clinicians' input. You know, even even the ones that sometimes give me a little pushback on something my post. I I appreciate the opportunity to engage. So uh, if you're listening. Please don't drop me as a connection. Add me instead. Let's talk. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's collaborate. Let's what's be. The wor- yeah. What's the worst the that can happen? I learn something or you learn something. Ooh, those sounds like terrible outcomes. What if we both learned something? Oh, I my mean- goodness. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, Andrew, as, as we're kind of wrapping up here, you know, what is one thing that you want people to take away from the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy and um, what your mission is? right here well i would like them to either come away with uh, curiosity at this stage or excitement i want them to, to be motivated to engage with me in a conversation and and talk about some of the things that we're doing you know th- that that's that's the most important thing for me right now i understand that that we might have a little bit of an uphill battle because you know changing perceptions of how to look it's like well this is not a class you know what i mean i have to convince them to look at it through this lens okay but i've got science on my side i've got data on my side so i believe this is going to be successful and i'm happy to talk to anybody about it and that's how you know that like you really believe in what your mission is. You're willing to talk to the doubters. You're willing to talk to anybody. I want to talk to them the most. (laughs) Yeah. And that's like, that's where I think, you know, change really happens is when you are willing to talk and collaborate and listen and understand the, another side to try and relate what you're talking about. And really that's what you're talking about is making group therapy more relatable. So people can take it, implement in their own lives, you know, whatever it is and just be better. Yeah. And that's, that is what I'm excited about is I want people to understand, like, it's not like, it's not like, um, you know, you're a a pea and you're a carrot, like you're putting them both together and damn, they're delicious. Right. (laughs) That's the thing. Like, or like, you know, an orange or an apple, like you cut them out, put them in a little cocktail, maybe add a little bit of pear, banana, pineapple. And what do you got? You got some amazing tasting food. Like that is life. And sometimes when we separate things out, we miss out on the broader flavors that are available. If you would just mix them together a little bit and you see Oh, this really enhances, you know, the knowledge that I have about this part of the brain. And if I do this skill, like that, people seem to relate to that a little bit better and can implement it. And like, that is, that is very commendable. 
Well, thank you. No, I, again, I, you know, it's, it's an exciting experience. Um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna miss my students, but I believe that, that I, that this is going to help a lot of people. And I, and I believe it's going to help clinicians too. You know, when their when their talk time goes down, their observation time goes up. So if, if you have a, if you have a, a, a hypothetical session right now where you've got a, a patient spending 50, 60, 70% of the, of the lesson reading from a, a curriculum or, you know, leading the discussion, then you only have like, say, 30% of the time to get to know your patients and to observe them, right? And so when when the patient talk time goes up, not only are they engaging in more of that meaningful, uh, positive change talk, but the clinician gets to know them better, right? They get, they get more data themselves. So I think I think that this really will bring more value to them as well. I agree. I agree. So Andrew, if people want to find out more about the Institute for the advancement of group therapy, uh, where could they go? Where could they find you? Uh, what are good ways, ways to connect with you? Okay. So we have our website at grouptherapycertification.com. grouptherapycertification.com. Um, on there, uh, you'll find a couple of sample session plans and articles um, that we've Put out also a little bit about myself and um, our uh, other our founder Nick Jarowski. Um, and all of our contact information is on there. But I'm I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can find me find me there. And again, um, let's connect, let's talk, let's collaborate, and let's make a positive impact on behavioral health. Absolutely. And that all of that'll be in the show notes. So if anybody wants uh, to quickly find it, you'll be able to find the website, you'll be able to find uh, Andrew's LinkedIn profile link in the notes. Um, Andrew, it's been a pleasure having you on and talking about, you know, advancing group therapy in a real like a, a real tangible way, not just like, you know, removing clinicians, but taking their knowledge and being able to uh, transfer that in a, in a way that it makes sense and, um, you know, enhances what, what they have too. So I appreciate you coming on and having this, having this discussion with us. Yeah. And, and thank you for the curveball of actually remembering seven people in, in your sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even really remember uh, how many graduated with me. Like that's how memory works. It, it, maybe it was 2,500. Maybe it was more than that. It, it was in California. So I don't, I don't know. It seemed like yeah. a big school. <laughs> I got lucky. It was a nice round number 100, even 100. It's like, it can't, you can't get any, uh, any luckier than that. But uh, for those who tuned in halfway, this is Untapped Keg, a podcast about sobriety and mental health where we uh, look at different perspectives into the subject to try to give you some skills that you can relate into your own life that maybe you could take one thing out and try it and see if it works. And if it doesn't, that's OK, because that's what life is, is trying new things, seeing if there's something you like there and then molding it to your own life. Don't let it mold you. You mold it. I, that's one thing that I want people to take away, especially for where I am in my own life. Like I'm done letting things mold me. I'm going to mold it. Um, and we could do a whole different discussion on that. But uh, find us on Keg, all social media platforms. Uh, our DMs are open. Reach out if you want to talk, no matter what it is. If you need help finding resources, I can try to help you as best I can to find those resources. And um, make sure you hit those subscribe button on all the social media or 
podcast platforms, all audio podcast platforms. Leave us a five-star review. Um, uh, we got one like last week that made me tear up and cry a little bit because sometimes it can feel like I'm talking into the void here and that um, when I hear from you, it lets me know that you really do understand what I'm saying and it makes me know that I'm connecting with people and uh, that helps me in a way that's hard to describe. And, um, you know, youtube.com slash untapkeg, hit that subscribe button there as well. Um, but this has been untapkeg and let's try to be better tomorrow than we were today. Cause at least if we don't make it. We tried. Have a great week, everybody. I love you.